HPPodcraft.com On a verdant slope of Mount Paenellis in Arcadia, there stands an olive grove about the ruins of a villa. Close by is a tomb, once beautiful with the sublimest sculptures, but now fallen into as great decay as the house. At one end of that tomb, its curious roots displacing the time-stained blocks of panhelic marble, grows an unnaturally large olive tree of oddly repellent shape. So like to some grotesque man, or death-distorted body of a man, that the country folk fear to pass it at night when the moon shines faintly through the crooked boughs. Mount Mayanellis is a chosen haunt of dreaded Pan whose queer companions are many, and simple swains believe that the tree must have some hideous kinship to these weird panaceae. But an old beekeeper who lives in the neighboring cottage told me a different story. <laughs> well, you know you're in for a good story when the beekeeper is yeah, at the helm. The beekeeper, beekeeper's going to lay it down for us. <laughs> I just imagine that uh, all of his stories end with, of course, this was before they were all stung by bees. <laughs> I thought most of the stories would end with, you know, so they ate a lot of honey. Yeah. <laughs> it's just good for his, yeah. his business. Yeah, everything is like that. They were all satisfied by beekeeper brand honey. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, the opening paragraph of The Tree. The Tree. One the... of the two stories that we are going to do in this episode of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. That's right. Uh, what's the other story that we're doing? The other story is The Cats of Ulthar. Oh, I can't wait. It's a double feature. Well, uh, wait, you I'm, can't wait. I can't wait because you? me, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, and I can't wait because I'm Chris Lackey. So that was, uh, and, and that was uh, Heather Klinky reading the opening paragraph of The Tree. A very creepy reading. Yeah, very creepy. She is, uh, if we haven't said it before, the voice of the show tag at the beginning and the end oh, of yeah. each episode. She does do that. She does. And uh, she's uh, also my wife. She's married to Chad. That's right. Uh, so the beekeeper, the story that he tells. In the tree. Yes. Is about uh, Kalos and Musides. Uh, Kalos and Musides are both awesome sculptors. That's right. The best sculptors the world has ever known. Yeah. Supposedly. And uh, and back when they were around this hillside villa that's described in the beginning, mm-hmm. it wasn't all broken down. It was this nice resplendent. It was, uh, yeah, beautiful. Really cool place. To, Lovely to place. So uh, Kalos and Musides, the best sculptors in the world, the, the cool thing about those guys is that they're best friends. Yeah. They yeah. weren't uh, uh, competitive at yeah. all. They were just totally into each other. And I mean, they were different. Yeah. They were different guys. Oh, yes, guys. they were different guys. Uh, well, they had different approaches to their art. Right, exactly. Uh, Musides, he would like kind of go into the city and right. like to drink and party and have yeah, a good time. That's how he gets his inspiration exactly. by rocking it. He yeah. loves to rock and be with the people and get the passion. Yeah, exactly. Where uh, Kalos, on the other hand, goes off out into the woods. Yeah, and, he stays at home. And and uh, he'll frolic. Well, not I don't know if he frolics, but he yeah. meditates. He meditates on, out in the olive grove. On the olive grove, uh, you know, because he's kind of in touch with Pan, you know, the god. Right. To me, it seems pretty obvious that... Kalos is Lovecraft, yeah. Basically, you know who uh, who who stays at home and meditates, mm-hmm. and and then he draw for his art. He gets inspiration, yeah. whereas uh, uh, Musides is worldly, and and he gets experience, and then that's what he brings back home to his, right. his art. It, in a way, it almost reminds me of like a like a serial killer cop movie. You know where, where yeah, cause like Musides is like the the rookie who likes to go out on the town and party, and he gets info from his CIs out there, and then like Kalos is the old vet who goes to the library, you know, and does the research. He looks through lots of books with like wood carvings in them and stuff. And then Are he, you, is that kind of like the cop buddy movie with Steven Seagal where he was like the Buddhist? And then the, yeah, sure, there's that. And, that's in a ton of cop movies. Well, what was the other one? The uh... I was thinking more like Seven, you know, but that that's. <laughs> 
<laughs> you you proved my point. It's like I think that the 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 modern the like the cop movie between the rookie and the the old vet that relationship really is it comes from Kalos and New Cities. <laughs> I find that theory exciting, Shad, uh, but I would like like a little bit more evidence to support it. But instead of these guys busting crimes, they uh, they were are busting stone, yeah, busting stone into beautiful shapes. <laughs> so famous were Kalos and New Cities that none wondered when the tyrant of Syracuse sent to them deputies to speak of the costly statue of Tyche which he had planned for his city. <laughs> it's it's so cool, man. Because uh, why are the people of Syracuse being led by somebody who's just saying he's the tyrant? Yeah, I know. I would think if I was in charge, I would want, you know, people say I'm benevolent leader, you know, or something yeah, exactly. like that. But the benevolent like, leader, exactly. But he's in a tyrant. He's like, I am the tyrant of Syracuse. Don't expect much more out of me than that. <laughs> I was honest in my campaign. And, uh, oh, Tyche is the god of uh, kind of a city's, like, luck for the city. Like, you know, if you if you want your city to be prosperous, this god is the god that I'll right. you out. And uh, the tyrant wants a statue of Tyche to put up in his city in, in Syracuse. To, and he wants that statue to be the best, the most beautiful. And so he comes to Kalos and New Cities and says, you know, both of you guys give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And we'll pick the best one, and that'll be our Statue of Liberty, so to speak. And, uh, and you know, the tyrant, he knows about their friendship, so he knows that it's going to be even more yeah. incredible because they'll help each other out. Yeah, because he, he, he's going, you know, if these guys will like work together on and you know have mm. both the same projects then they'll kind of collaborate away like you know goes hey you know i'm having a little trouble with this part what yeah. do you think and you know they'll share knowledge exactly. with each other and supposedly his theory is that it's going to be the best sculpture yeah. ever made it's top sculptor <laughs> lovecraft doing the reality show make it work yeah totally <laughs> kalis is like look man i love new cities i do i love that guy but i'm doing this for my baby i, I will destroy him <laughs> Uh, but anyway, they start. So he's right. They start working like crazy. Right, right. And they're they're helping each other out. Mercedes goes out and parties, yep. and, and Kalos goes into the grove and he kind of meditates. But Kalos starts not. He starts to kind of getting a little sickly and, and feeling yeah. a little under the weather. And yeah. things aren't working out for him. Well, and... what happened? Well, Musidis first, people notice, because Kalos is always sequestered away, so people don't necessarily know he's sick. It's Musidis who's getting more and more depressed. You know, oh, right. he's yes. doing fewer rails when he's out partying. <laughs> he, he's rock and rolling every night, but he's only partying every other day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, people are wondering what's up. So he finally admits, he goes, look, Kalos is sick. Oh, right. right yes. yeah. And uh, and it's bumming me out because he's my BFF. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing is that, that Kalos looks almost kind of serene. Like he's, he's kind of okay with being sick. Yeah, he's 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 okay with it, and uh, when he's talking to him, he's you know I, I think I'm gonna like he knows he's gonna die, mm -hmm. like he's he realizes his illness is is that bad, and he and he tells New Cities, uh, you know when I die, just you know I want a, a, an olive tree like planted mm -hmm. planted over me, right? That's what he right. says, an olive tree, and uh, you know don't do anything crazy, just give me an olive yeah. tree. But, well, Musides, he says, you know, when you die, man, I'm going to build this right. sepulcher that's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to yeah. sculpt the shit out of it. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, yep, that's right. That's textually supported. Yeah, that's, that's what he says. That's exactly what he says. I'm not paraphrasing at all. Uh, but... But uh, Kalos is like, no way, man, just the olive tree. Just the olive That's trees. what I want. That's my wish. Yeah. That's my final wish. Which probably drives me cities crazy because earlier, you know, he says he's kind of upset. Like, he he's neither of them are sculpting Taiki right now. They're both, like, Kalos is ill and Musidis is 
is treating him or mm-hmm. he's you know he's being his sort of nursemaid and then Caleb will say hey tell you what can you just leave me alone i want to be out here in my olive grove and Musidius takes it personally he's like i can't believe he wants to spend more time with the trees than with yeah. me i'm his best friend he gets really annoyed by it uh but anyway finally sadly Kalos dies yeah he dies yeah and um uh, he's bummed out he's he's uh totally yeah, he's grief stricken and right. just mopes around and everything is you know he's He's a sad guy. And he honors Kalos' wishes, which are to plant some olive branches at his grave. Right. Olive, but yeah. perhaps even a little selfishly, he also honors his own wishes, which is to sculpt this massive sepulcher yeah. for Kalos. Mm-hmm. So he does both. He plants the branches and he builds the mausoleum. Yeah. And he uh, also finally gets to work on the Taiki statue. That's right. And uh, he, and maybe that's how he kind of deals with his grief. Yeah. He starts working on that sculpture and he, and for about three years. Yeah, it takes a long, it takes a long time. And during that time, over uh, the sepulchre, a tree grows, and it is, and it doesn't just grow at a normal rate. An olive tree grows extraordinarily quickly, like right o- out of the sepulchre. Yeah, and it's an odd-looking tree. It's got almost a human aspect to yeah. it. It's very strange, very creepy. And as Musidis is working on the sculpture, actually, one branch grows out from the olive tree and kind of hangs over his studio where he's working uh-huh. ominously. And and um, you know, Musidis is happier because he's working, but he, you know, he does like having company. He doesn't like being alone because. It says, uh, The bleak mountain wind sighing through the olive grove and the tomb tree had an uncanny way of forming vaguely articulate sounds. Yeah. So he's just spooked out, you know, know. working anymore. But the people still come by and they see that he's doing good work and all the townsfolk are pretty excited about this Mm -hmm. and about the statue. And they're like, hey man, if this this statue's going to rock so hard... That uh, Taiki is going to give us some sweet blessings, right, and yeah. everything's going to be great. They're super excited, so the time comes, and the Syracusans send out their emissaries to go, you know, pick up the statue, yeah. basically. And they get there, uh, and that night, you know, the night before they're going to pick it up, there's uh, one of those big storms that happens in romantic literature. Yeah. You know, the, the lots big... of rain, lots of wind. Yeah. Uh, People start freaking out. They start yeah. praying to uh, the wind god. Yes, exactly. <laughs> do they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what you do when it gets like that. You pray to yeah. whatever god, sp- whatever very specific god. Yeah, exactly. You know, you spill some milk, you pray to the spilled milk god. It was so much easier in ancient Greece. Yeah. You know, to get what you needed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so they, they weather that night with the storm going on. And the villagers tell these messengers, you know, what's going on between the two sculptures. So they're kind of caught up on the story. And, uh, well, in the, in the morning, something crazy has happened. Slaves' cries ascended from a scene of desolation, and no more amidst the olive grove rose the gleaming colonnades of that vast hall where Musidis had dreamed and toiled. Lone and shaken mourned the humble courts and the lower walls, for upon the sumptuous greater Perry style had fallen squarely the heavy overhanging bough of the strange new tree. Reducing the stately poem in marble with Odd completeness to a mound of unsightly ruins. Strangers and Aegean stood aghast, looking from the wreckage to the great sinister tree, whose aspect was so weirdly human and whose roots reached so queerly into the sculptured sepulchre of Kalos. And their fear and dismay increased when they searched the fallen apartment. For of the gentle Musides, and of the marvelously fashioned image of Taiki, no trace could be discovered. So, Musidius has disappeared. And the statue of Taiki, yeah. gone. Just gone. 
I imagine that the statue would be enormous, so I don't know what he did with it. Or if it just vanished. Or... I would assume, I assumed it was some kind of supernatural take. I, what I like to think is that the statue came to life and scooped him up, and then they ran off into the woods together. <laughs> what? That's awesome. That is going to be my interpretation of the story as well. <laughs> it's not in the text anywhere, but that's just yeah. what I like to think. Well, all right. Well, all we know is that so this is how the villa in the beginning of the story became the ruin that yeah. it is. The tree branch from the grave crushed the villa. Yep. And um, Eusebius disappears. And, of course, the Syracusans are a little disappointed because they showed up expecting this awesome statue. Right. But uh, then the story says they went and they got another statue from Athens. And, yeah. You know, it was okay, but at least they didn't have to deal with any crazy artists, you know. Yeah. So that, you know, and then the, the last paragraph of the story says, But the olive grove still stands. As does the tree growing out of the tomb of Kalos. And the old beekeeper told me that sometimes the boughs whisper to one another in the night wind, saying over and over again, Oida, Oida, I know, I know. I know, I know honey is delicious. <laughs> And so, you should buy some. So buy beekeeper brand honey. <laughs> uh, did you look up Oida? What is it? I, I looked it up. It's this is a Greek word full of perfect, full and perfect knowledge of something. I think it means I know, I know. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, but, but I think that it's a little, I mean, that's the translation. What right, it means. right, yes. Um, it's used in the Bible a few times. I think it means like full and perfect knowledge of, yes. of something. Even with that definition, I don't know exactly what its meaning is. In yeah, the no, story. and that's the end of the story. Yeah, that is the sorry, end of the sorry. story. Yeah, we, were, we jumped on that. Uh, so I, I had, to, I'm pretty confused. I didn't like the story. Well, let me, let me lay out what I thought it meant because okay, I sure. think you said something before we started recording here that mm-hmm. kind of freaked me out because mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. When I read this, I assumed that it was a sort of almost moralistic thing. It's almost a statement of Lovecraft's artistic aesthetic in that, uh, he gets, as we've talked about in these past stories, he gets most of his inspiration from dreams. Mm-hmm. And you know it's almost divine. It comes from nature. We know that he, when he was a kid, he built these little temples to Pan and that sort of thing. So he gets his inspiration from nature and from being alone and in sol- solitude and, and drawing on his dreams. Right. And maybe he, in this story, it seems like that methodology triumphs over the spiritualism triumphs over the worldliness of Musides, who right. had to build this awesome sepulchre for him. That's what I took away from it. Right. And honestly, when I read it too, so did I. Okay. But when I did a little background reading uh, in in defense of Dagon and H you know H P Lovecraft wrote that kind mm-hmm. of essay, and in it he talks about this story specifically and says that uh, Musides poisoned Kalos, like he had him out there and was poisoning him. I didn't get that from the story at all. No, it doesn't make any sense. I mean. Now, looking at it, the whole story, it's like a revenge yeah, now tale. Yeah, now it becomes clear that it's a revenge tale. But because... that's not clear at all in the, yeah. in, the, in the story itself. No. Not one bit. In fact, it's almost as if Musidi's plan, which clearly was to poison Kalos while pretending to be his best friend, mm-hmm. worked on the reader. Because I just assumed he really was <laughs> his best friend. Right. I, yeah. I don't get that at all. I didn't, it didn't come across. And if that's true, maybe I misread. I, I was... I read that in uh, Lovecraft's Encyclopedia that yeah. uh, jo- Joshi wrote. Maybe I misunderstood what I read in there, but it seems pretty clear. Well, if that's the, I'm, that actually is kind of an interesting story. Yeah. You know. That makes it a little bit more interesting, but if that's what was going on, that was really poorly... Because then it's almost like a, maybe it's a Mozart-Salieri relationship or something like that. Like, he right. hates him because he's better, and, and uh, maybe... I, I don't know. That's, that's a much cooler idea. Maybe 
Kalos or Musidis rather has some problems because he's gambling or he's out yeah. there. Or he he doesn't have his muse anymore. You know. No, I don't know. It doesn't. <sighs> it does. It it was poorly communicated. Oh, and yeah. just for another side note, is Kalos means handsome or fair mm -hmm. in Greek, and uh, Musidis is the son of the muse. Son of the muse. Neither of which are actual real names. Nobody's ever been named that. That's something that Lovecraft took from. Oh yeah. Uh, from the words, Greek words, and then named them those things. Like I that. thought Kalos was the guy's name in God of War. Uh, that, no, that's Kratos. That's Kratos. <laughs> okay. That's Kratos. Sorry, big well, difference. Um, oh, and the story was written uh, really quickly. In sure. The, the story was written in 1920 and first published in the tryout in October of 1921. Okay. So it kind of sat around for over a year. Uh, but other than that... I gotta um, say, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, I wish I'd known about the poisoning. It might have made it more interesting. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, I, I'm really disappointed to say that Lovecraft did not communicate that. It's not in the story. Even going back, it wasn't yeah. even hinted at, in my opinion. Yeah. Or, or we're just kind of dense readers. I don't know. It could be. Now, the, now uh, d let's move on to the next revenge the next... tale, which is a very um, now, this is, clear yeah. tale. Yeah, this is definitely a revenge tale. Yeah, and it's very salient. I wasn't confused by this at all. No, and I, I, I really like this revenge tale, The Cats of Ulthar. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat. And this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic and close to strange things which men cannot see. Clearly, uh, HP's a, he a loves, cat lover. He loves the cats. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a little story or essay, I should say, that he writes um, a few years later in 26, I think, called Cats and Dogs. Uh, he loves cats. He Lovecraft loves cats. He's crazy into them. And, you know, I think anybody that that has cats or likes cats see you know they, they do appear to have their own lives uh, they appear to be highly intelligent they appear yeah. to be very spiritual you know mm -hmm. and uh personally yeah. i think it's just they you know they just work a little differently than primates and, and yeah. so we try to put our logic on what they're doing and, exactly. and that's why they exactly. seem so mysterious you know because <laughs> they just work on completely uh, different i've had cats when i was mm -hmm. growing up i don't have any cats uh, now in my adulthood, but you know they're you know I liked some cats and some cats I don't. Yes, yeah. you know they got pers little personalities. And... There's a lot of writers that seem to be pretty close with their cats, and I can understand that because they are great to have around when you're working. They provide company, but they don't really interfere, and they're not yeah. very needy. No, you know? they don't. You don't need your attention too yeah. much. Not like a dog or anything like that. But this is less about Lovecraft's affection for cats, yes. and it's more about this ancient tale of Ulthar. Yeah. In Ulthar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killing of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife, who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this, I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping slaying every cat which came near to their hovel. And from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. So there's some jerks. Yeah, it's an old, cu old couple. Yeah, and they old just people, hate cats. And they they're... hate cats so much that they set up little traps. Yeah. And they kill the cats. They kill any cats that come into their into their yard, basically. The people in Ulthar are just too scared of these people. Yeah, because they... they're kind of creepy and kind of weird. And they're just, you know what? We're not going to mess with yeah. them. We're not going to even bring up the whole right. cat thing. Just because we don't want to deal with it. Yeah, the habitual expression on the old people's faces uh, scares them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so ah. bizarre. Yeah, I, I guess there are people like that in your town sometimes. Where, 
you yeah. start to approach the house and maybe the smell that's coming out of it just makes you go, you know what, I don't even want to get up in their business. Right. Or there's newspaper on the windows or something that right. I don't want to investigate. Yeah. I loved Fluffy, but, you know, <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> just let it go. Uh, but then a, a caravan of wanderers from the south shows up. Yeah. And uh, this caravan, they the way that they're described, they sound kind of um, Egyptian. Yeah. They've got, like, they talk about how they have lots of, uh, you know, uh paintings on on the side of their wagons and things that have uh human bodies but animal heads mm -hmm. uh that they also have kind of um horned with like a disc in the center of it which is very common yeah the leader of the caravan had it well yeah i was wondering about that actually so he had a headdress with two horns and a curious disc between yeah. the horns that's yeah. a pretty common egyptian thing yeah like i think it's Ra. i'm totally guessing here but okay. I, i've seen it in hieroglyphs you know where they have other things so cool. well definitely like... you know we know the egyptians had those gods with oh the, right cat heads cat and, heads uh, and Hawk heads right, and, right. and uh, gerbil heads and <laughs> well, uh, there's a kid with with there's one kid that's got a little black cat. Yeah, the, and the kid, his parents uh, died because of the plague, and he yeah. survived. And this cat has kind of been his comfort, with, you know, from losing his parents and stuff. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow. And when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. I, don't know, I got a little emotionally invested at that point because I have two black cats. You have two black uh, cats. They, I did uh, get them both actually in a kind of emotional period of my life, okay. and and they really were good to me. Okay. It, it is nice to have uh, some pets to keep you company when you're going through yeah. some trouble. So I'm on this kid's side. Yeah, you're with them. Yeah. Well, one day, check it out. Cat's missing. Where did the cat go? I didn't read that far into the story. <laughs> <laughs> Just break down. <laughs> I wish I wish that was true. <laughs> what? <gasps> <laughs> yeah, it sucks though, man. The kitten comes up missing. Yep. And uh, the kid's just bawling his eyes out and running around the market. And, yep. Um, and then some of the people in the town, they say, well, you should know. There's this... Right by where you are, there's yeah. these people, this, this old couple, this codger and his wife, and they freaking hate cats and they kill him. Yeah. So the kid calms down and then uh -huh. gets real, like, serious. Yeah. You know? Sarah McLaughlin music starts playing. <laughs> You see images of hurt cats and hurt dogs. <laughs> That's just what I imagined. Uh, I didn't imagine that. I, <laughs> no, mine was he, much more sinister. Yeah, right? tell so me about that because I like mine's. That. Mine's more like a kind of a, you know, a, a, a Carmen Randa. No, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my brain just, uh, you know, dot 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 dot. Oh right, da, right. Da, Car Oh, Carmina Barana. Carmina Barana. Thank you. <laughs> God damn, it was... <laughs> For a split second, though, I was imagining Carmen Verena with her fruit hat dancing around. Boom chicka, boom chicka. <laughs> right. Well, he's... Yeah, yeah he, that, that music's playing. Carmina Verena starts playing. Yeah, and the music, his eyes, you know, the pupils dilate. Yeah. And he just gets real serious, and he goes over, and he begins, like, chanting in this unknown yeah. language. And the clouds up in the sky change. Yeah, Even yeah. to take on the aspect of these Egyptian gods with the cat heads. Yeah. yeah. So all this, this stuff happens, and then the kid gets done with it, and then all, you know, the Egyptian, or, well, the travelers, the dark. Yeah, well, then the night passes, yeah. and uh, when the morning comes, uh, they're gone. Like, don't they, they, they beat yeah. it? Yeah, they beat it. And also, all the cats are gone. Gone. And so, everybody starts, you know, thinking, oh, it's those, those dark travelers, they're the ones that made all the, they took the cats, Right, they know? said they, you know, maybe as revenge for that kitten coming up missing, they just gathered up all the cats and took off. Yep. And, yeah. uh, 
But one, one kid saw them, uh, though. He's saying, actually, I don't think that's what happened because, uh, well, this was uh, Little Atoll. Little Atoll. The innkeeper's son. Vowed that he had, at twilight, seen all the cats of Althar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, two abreast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. Ooh, neat. Yeah. But of course nobody believes the kids. I, well, they don't believe him, but also they're just like, these are the lamest villagers ever. They're so scared of that couple, they just don't, like, the cats go up nesting and everything. They could just at least go check out his story or something. Yeah, no. But they go, that kid's just crazy, and we're not going to worry about the fact that all of our cats are gone. Let's go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, cats aren't really... Uh, crucial to society functioning, you know what I True. mean. True. So, and if it's a primitive, a primitive place, you know they've got crops to tend and animals and yeah. livestock. But I would never want to live in Alter. They're too apathetic. <laughs> they don't have police clearly. Like they don't. I mean, don't they have a couple of guys they could just send over to knock on the door? Just see what's up. Yeah. Well, no social support at all. There. None, none, none whatsoever. And then, so the cats, you know, are gone. People kind of go about their business. Mm-hmm. Another, they hit the hay. They hit the hay. Wake up in the morning. Cats are back. Yeah, cats are all back. And they're all doing their thing. They're hanging out. But strange. Yeah. They're not eating. Yeah, they're not very hungry. They're not very hungry. They try. They put off bowls of food. The cats check it out. And like, eh, nah. yeah, whatever. And again, they try and blame this on the. The people. Oh, right. Yeah, they're like, oh, you know, they must have done something to our cats. Yeah. <laughs> the kid, you know, I think it's all tall again, uh, speaks up and is like, you know, no, something fishy's going yeah. on. Like, I think somebody should go really check out those, mm-hmm. you know, those people. Yeah, because it, it was... It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. They finally get themselves together enough uh-huh. to have a couple of people go check it out. In another week, the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty. Though in so doing, he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thol the cutter of stone as witnesses. So basically they sent the three stooges to go check out this house. <laughs> Shang, Thol, and Curly. Oh, uh, what? Curly? I was also uh, partial to Shang, Thol, and Shemp myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the ones that Shang, Thol, and Curly Joe. <laughs> so lame. Uh, well, so those guys go out there. And when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this. Two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. Ah! Nice. They, those cats flippin' ate those They ate them. They ate them. That's crazy. So the kids basically used some, some ancient uh, dark wandering magic yeah. and uh, commanded the cats to eat them. For, yeah. You know, some revenge. And because of that, they, they passed a law on altar that they should not, no cat could be killed there. No man. No man may kill a cat. May kill a cat, so maybe a woman will. Yeah. <laughs> the end actually reminded me of uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Because at In the what end, way? Well, because the, they find the two skeletons picked clean on the floor. Oh, but right. there's that part in the end when Bella Lugosi, or the vampire character, uh-huh. uh, he gets hit with the solenite bomb or an atomic ray or something. Right. And they find him in the backyard of the house and they pull the, his cape aside and it's just his skeleton in there. Yeah. Which, so that means that whatever ray hit him, it will dissolve organic material, but not cloth. Not cloth. So he's been naked under that cape <laughs> under the for the cape whole movie. Been naked the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about playing night from <laughs> Yes, I I do remember that. Well, anyway, uh, I, uh, now this story I liked a lot. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. just a cool little revenge story. Yeah, it's be not... mean to animals, and then the animals get their revenge. There you go. <laughs> so important. 
Oh, so I okay, so I was wrong. The kid does have a name. The kid does have a name. It's Menes. Menes. Okay. What does that mean? Menes was the name of the first pharaoh. Uh, well, of the first dynasty. He was oh, really? Of the first dynasty. Yeah, of Egypt. Oh, that's cool. Little so thing. another another nod to them being like of Egyptian descent, or yeah, or maybe he becomes this uh, pharaoh. Or eventually he could become the pharaoh, because yeah. this is ancient times. Yeah. Yeah, so who knows? So this could be a little backstory on that pharaoh, which is neat. Well, also, too, this is another thing. Maybe, maybe they were gypsies, because... Yeah, I thought of, about that, too. A lot of people thought that, um, well, gypsy is was short for Egyptian. Like, nobody knows really where the gypsies come from. Some think uh-huh. that they were of Indian descent, and they were just kind of nomadic travelers and stuff like that. But the word gypsy is just a short abbreviation of, of Egyptian. I guess I never really put that together before. Yeah, so because a lot of people thought they were maybe Egyptian, but well, when I think of gypsy, I think of Eastern European, right? Roma, Roma, know? yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what it—that's what it means. And then the uh-huh. Roma have a very long, rich history that, but nobody really knows. They think they came from somewhere in India originally, yeah. but they, you know, slowly moved through right. uh, the Middle East and up into Eastern Europe. And another of the characters in here, uh, Atoll, the, mm-hmm. the innkeeper's son, appears in later Lovecraft stories as an adult and an old man. No way! He's in The Other Gods, and he shows up in the dream quest of Unknown Kadat. No way! Oh, I yes. love that. That's so cool. So, and he's an old man. He's like 300 years in the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. But we'll talk about that when we get to that story. Um, but this story was written in on June 15th of 1920. Okay. And it was published in November of 1920 in the amateur journal, Tryout, the Tryout. And supposedly people tie this into the dream cycle stuff. Are both of these dream cycle stories or considered that? The tree, no. The tree's kind of people kind of attributed to uh, the density uh, stuff. He didn't write the story because his buddy Galpin, this is one of his letters, Mm -hmm. Galpin had written a story called uh, Marsh Mad, which had a tree that was kind of a living person Uh, thing, sort of. And he was like, oh, my idea is too close to his idea, so I'm going to just kind of forget it. And then he decided to write it anyway, years later, because he, I guess, felt time passed, and it was, you know, there was room for another tree. Yeah, sure. You know? Absolutely. So I guess that was what was going on there. It's time again these days, I think. Yeah, we need another little We need tree a good story. tree story at the multiplex. <laughs> Balance out the current offerings. <laughs> Ugh. But, uh, you know, I, I like that story. It was, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, the cat story. And it's, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. I and... do like the really creepy aspect of where the cats are gone, yeah. then they come back, but they don't eat, they don't eat. for a few days yeah. because they just are full of human Such flesh. a better way to illustrate that than to show the cat attack, which would inevitably be just sort of lame. You yeah. know? Or a bunch of cats, like, swarming yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Still would be fun. Still It'd still be laughable. It still would be lame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know, this reminds me of... Um, the story, The Repair of Reputations, the Robert Chambers story. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that one? Oh, I'm glad you said that because we haven't uh, brought up Robert Chambers. Oh, no, yet. yeah. Uh, Robert Chambers was an author writing in the 1890s who influenced Lovecraft heavily. And uh, there's a collection of his stories called The King in Yellow. The King in Yellow, yeah. And a couple of them um, Lovecraft borrowed from. Yeah. Uh, borrowed references from. And the repair of reputations was a sort of science fiction story, almost. Yeah, it was were, in the future, nineteen twenty-one. I think yeah. it was it, the the future year because the story was written in the eighteen right. nineties. And if I catch your reference, I think you, there's a guy in there who uh, stays in a room with a cat, and the cat's yeah. attacking him. He constantly. he is the repair of reputations. Right. When people have problems, they come and talk to this guy. Yeah. And you never see the cat, but the guy's got scratch marks all over him, and he hates this cat, and he's always trying to <laughs> yeah. kill this cat. But you never see the cat. You never hear You're the right. cat. Yeah, and it makes it just so unsettling in a way that he's just got this ongoing battle with the animal. 
animal. With this animal <laughs> yeah. that you never see. So it's like, maybe he's doing it to himself. Maybe he's uh -huh. like screaming. You don't know. It's really, it's a really creepy, creepy story. And I think he gets more messed up as the story continues. Yeah. Like when the guy shows up to talk to him again, he's like missing an eye. Like mm -hmm. the cat poked out one of his eyes when he sleeps. The cat attacks him and stuff. I'm so glad you brought that up. At some point in the future, we really should just take an episode and talk about the King and Yellow. Oh, and the yeah. Robin that's, story. Uh, that's some really cool stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it, it definitely is a, a precursor to, to Lovecraft and, and in that vein. And, and yeah, uh, really I would fun. highly recommend. And and uh, you know, it used to be harder to find the King and Yellow that collection, but it did. Yeah, I but think it's that it's fairly yeah, yeah easy to get now. Um, but I remember I had a special order it back when I was in, a teenager and was interested in it. Yeah. I had to find it in some weird libraries. It was difficult to get a hold of. Yeah, you can find it now on, I think, Amazon. Tells I think the problem with Robert Chambers is actually he was a really popular author in his time. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a painter who turned to writing. And he wrote a lot of, I guess, what people considered shop girl novels. So they were sort of petty, petty kind of almost soap operatic mm -hmm. books. And, the, you know, they flooded the market with them because they were so popular. But because they were so popular, nobody really thought to preserve this stuff. So right. a lot of it just went away. Huh. It just went into the bargain bin with the, uh, you know, Too Much Joy albums and <laughs> the Hanson albums. I don't know why I said Too Much Joy. They were a pretty popular <laughs> band, I think. Uh, but you know what I mean anyway. Yeah, I did. What you they mean. eventually disappeared. Well, uh, I think that wraps up our two stories, uh, The Tree yeah. and the Cats of Altar. What do we got um, next week? Uh, next week we are doing The Temple. The Temple. Is that right? Yes, we yeah, are. The Temple, uh, which is pretty cool. I'm yeah. I'm pretty into this, uh, into this story. I like that. It's got a nice uh, wartime setting. and uh, Yeah, World it, War War One. World War, yeah. Because the Great War. And, uh, and lots of good you know, sub-oceanic uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, There's a couple things I just wanted to uh, mention. Uh, mm -hmm. If you... If, listeners would please go to itunes and give us a rating and if you like our show enough give us a review write yeah. some nice kind words about the show and tell people why they should listen to it uh well with that i am chris lackey i'm chad pfeiffer and uh thanks again to heather that was a great job good job I'll, I'll see you when i get home <laughs> this has been the hp lovecraft literary podcast hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com